Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, Two Cents. Good to be here as always. Yes, we are recording um, and we do have questions sent in, so that's great. Always a surprise. Always a surprise. People will actually listen. I was actually- And a dad joke. There's there a bit of- A good dad joke in there too. There's a great dad joke being sent in, which is thank you for doing our work for us. Um, I, there is a bit of healthy competition within the, the RAS team. Whenever the Australian Investors Podcast episodes creep up the top 10 charts, like we rank across all shows that we run. And ever, whenever they get up in there, I send a screenshot to Kate being like, I'm coming for you. And she pumps out another <laughs> yeah, seven episodes in a week. <laughs> yeah. And then she just blows us all down. away. Um, but we have three of the two cents episodes from the last month in the top 10 overall episodes. So that means- of business podcast. Of this investors podcast. Over all us. the four channels, the two, the, yes, what you and I are doing, three of the four are in the top 10. And we do like 20 episodes a month. So it's pretty good, mate. Incredible. It's never happened before. Kate, we're coming for you. Credit to you. Credit to you. What have we? What have you been working on? <laughs> a whole heap of stuff. I mean, who could have missed the Matildas? We can't. We can't go without, oh, yeah. uh, without talking about that. We where are were going you, where live on Where were you when this happened? Uh, half asleep on the couch. <laughs> you know, we're running the risk that we're recording this and they're playing against tonight. I know. Be, be, be aware we're recording on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. So we spoiler alert: yeah. Australia wins. <laughs> <laughs> Public holiday for all. Yeah. Um, where were you? When you were on the couch. Where? Um, I'm quite often on the couch with my laptop open. So, uh, yeah, on the couch, I, I honestly, it was like, it was an emotional roller coaster, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, right it at was the end. Every penalty. Yeah. You thought it, it was, we'd done everything to lose it and resilience kind of stacked up again. I was at the, I was at a, like a gin bar thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. It was like a restaurant type of thing. And we dialed in on Optus Sport on my phone. Um, but the problem is someone else was watching on their phone. <laughs> three tables down and they must have been on like the channel seven app or whoever's got the rights and they got the feed about three seconds before us so they would be like whoa and we'd be looking at our phone oh like it would be like they would celebrate then we'd know what happens you're not on Vodafone is it no it's a flame optus yeah what have you been working on uh, a lot. I mean, we like all of us keeping track of what's going on earnings season at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think I'm heading up to Goldie with you next week in yes. Sydney this week. Yes. Meeting Man, meeting geez. clients and catching up. Catch me if you can. You're a bit of a traveler these days. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. But uh, enjoyable. Like going out to the 
attending these Rask events is kind of everyone says how you know tiring travel can be. It's actually you know engaging and fun. It's great. Yeah, it's just hearing fun. questions and meeting everyone. So yeah, yeah, when we get to meet people and chat to people who listen to the show and um, can pick up on the references with Doctor uh, Andrew <laughs> Derrimuth Esquire. And by the way, people have been listening. I realize this. People, new people, listen to the show all the time. So if you're new here, welcome. We should always explain who Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is. Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is Drew Meredith's alter ego, um, has been with the series for a long time. So there's effectively three of us in the studio every time we record. If there's a bold prediction, it comes from Dr. Andrew Derrimuth. And if a sensible retirement, financial planning, and wisdom, it comes from Drew Meredith, CFP. So, um, yeah, it's it's been great getting out on the road and meeting people. And we had a few folks last night who were regular listeners of the show. This was in Terrelgan last night, and Jamie came down and met with us, and that was a bit of fun. And I've got in my notes here, trusts on tour. We did have a few question, questions about trusts and using trusts to invest. And I thought, this is not where I thought this conversation was going to go, but happy to go there. Um, question for you, random off-the-cuff question. Do you use a trust to invest yourself? I do use a trust to hold business investments, not necessarily, I mean, my business, active investments versus passive investments, I guess. So, like private yeah. companies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the businesses we run owned, owned through a trust yep. generally. Yep. And then most of my investments are in SMSF yep. uh, at the moment. Yeah, fair enough. Do you? Do yeah. you operate your business in a trust? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Held the shares in a trust. Um, it was really just to have an extra layer of- Separation. Kind of separation, yeah. yeah. Um, Asset. Yeah, and, and then in the future, if it pays dividends, you can send the, the income to a different party, like your partner or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I did have a passive investments in that trust originally. Oh, right. So a share portfolio, commercial property, that sort of mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Okay. Um, JB Hi-Fi, making headlines last week on the Australian Investors Podcast, also <laughs> making headlines this week in other lesser important areas, comes out with its results. I did notice that, I did, I'll, I'll admit, maybe it wasn't the strongest answer. JB Hi-Fi is a business model. It's just a retailer <laughs> <laughs> that shoves a whole heap of stuff on a small footprint and Put some yellow tries tape to make as much, as much money. I think they've got an 8% margin, so go JB. <laughs> uh, but they reported, I mean, for a retailer- Quite well, and mm. management were quite positive. Their, I mean, sales in July fell by one point eight percent, but not surprising. And management are pretty um, positive that they're in. They're likely to gain market share in this environment because of their kind of cut cut price approach. Um, mm. I mean, over the year they're pretty That's strong. Market, yeah. like if you can gain market share, it's like the old. I mean, everyone used to say that about the reject shop. Yeah, as well, but not not as many people turned to the reject shop. Probably had less, you know, more consumables. Yeah, uh, but over the year. Comparable sales were up five percent because they've expanded into mobile phones and and everything beyond what used to be CD. So, uh, but online sales fell twenty percent. So everyone's going back into back in store. Exactly. Um, as we discovered last week, uh, JB Hi-Fi is a very much a fan favourite. Yes. Uh, and good pick. Good pick. Great pick. And. Um, even my- I couldn't use Telstra again, so I had to pick something else old. A family member reached out to me and said, I've been listening to you and that Drew guy. And I'm like, you are? <laughs> the, the last person I ever thought would be listening to the show, so shout out. Uh, and he was like, yeah, JB Hi-Fi. I'm like, yeah, I know. Pretty wild, isn't it? Anyway, um, good result. Another good result coming from the ASX's highest quality company, if I do say so myself, ProMedicus, the, the, the healthcare technology company. Uh, basically does software, keep that in mind, software 
for radiology clinics and hospitals to send and receive images and so on and so forth. Revenue up 33.6% to $124 million. I remember when that was like, <laughs> back in my day, Prometicus wasn't earning one-tenth of that. Um, net profit of $60.6 So that gives it... Basically, Solid. a profit margin of fifty percent. It's massive. Huge. We had, I mean, even like I think Transurban came out. And their profit was ninety million. Yeah, right. They had their multi multi billion dollar yeah. toll road provider. So, yeah. So this is insane. Uh, it's an e- EBIT margin. So earnings, operating profit is how you can think about it, like profit before taxes and stuff of sixty seven percent. Wow. Um, obviously, a fantastic company. No one would ever question that Prometicus is one of the highest quality companies on the Australian Stock Exchange. But you're going to have to pay a, prop, a price earnings ratio of something like 130 times. For good reason. Yeah, it's it's a super fast-growing, super high-quality growth company uh, based here in Melbourne, obviously operating around the world. Lots of clients, big hospitals coming on board yet that still have been announced but haven't been implemented. So super impressive results. I mean, if any company on the ASX can top that, maybe one of those cyclical resources businesses... Like, fantastic, but a great business, just very expensive. Disclosure, I do own shares. And they're hard to find, those ones that are sustainable and able to continue to evolve and grow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. The only real visibility we have with ProMedicus is that when the CEO, co-founder, Sam Huppert, who's been on the show before, uh, comes out, he says, you know, we've got, we believe we're ahead of the competition. We haven't lost tenders, like, for contracts. Um, We've got all these implementations to do. Our salespeople are busy. Those are really the only soft qualitative things that we have to go on as investors. But I think more and more the stock market has realized that this is the type of person, the type of leader in a business that you can trust that will be pretty candid. Now, obviously, there's a there will come a time when Prometicus's growth slows. It's a huge market, don't get me wrong, but we want to be aware of when it starts to slow down is- Every company slows eventually. Because there's 130 times, I think it's 100, I think off the top of my head is 130 times price earnings ratio. What people need to understand is that it doesn't need to slow dramatically for people to stop paying less for the company. Yeah. And so that's the risk when you overpay. It's not so much that the company itself is going to slow drastically. It's more so that other investors won't pay you as much. And probably making more money or yeah. will be making more money. Oh, yeah. Probably making a lot more money, but it'll have a lower price earnings ratio. Yeah. So you have a lower share price. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Other results, Drew? Challenger. I mean, I touch on, yeah, Challenger, it was a bit of a shocker in terms of the share price. I think the share price fell off, but I think Challenger's held so widely. So it's basically a retirement company. They sell annuities similar to a term deposit, mm. but like a 10, 15, 20 year annuity that gives you a guaranteed income stream. Total Ponzi. Yep, yeah. go on. Very difficult. No, held through a statutory <laughs> fund. Capital has to be held separately and invested. Yep. Um, they were, chall- it was very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended, maybe. starting early. <laughs> to buy an annuity when interest rates were zero because you're essentially locking in a long-term return of 3 3.5%, but now interest rates are higher. Annuities are becoming more attractive, similar to what you might think for an investment bond, I guess. Yep. Um, and that's evidenced by the fact they had, re- I think, retail, so direct to, to investors, sales were up 53% for the year. So hmm. the, the retiree generation uh, are basically looking at term deposit and similar products, not that this is government guaranteed, mm-hmm. uh, and buying more of these retirement income focused products. Doesn't you know doesn't mean it forms a whole part of a portfolio, but this if you want to set and forget a portion of your income, uh, and yeah. we we've always liked you- Challenger as a company, as a as a it's another financial company, but it's different to a bank. It makes money differently. Do you ever get um do you ever wake up at night in a cold sweat thinking Never. what's in that portfolio? 
in challenges portfolio. Yeah, with what's backing up these annuities? Yeah, I mean they're pretty they're they're regulated, so APRA regulated, Huge so they can't hold yeah. um to it's and it's similar to a case like a Berkshire Hathaway and the way they run their statutory fund. They have to hold a certain amount of, mm. of capital in there. True, true. Um so a lot of this is fixed income and that's why it, it it is very linked to what happens with interest rates because if you've got fixed income assets they you know, up and down when interest rates move and then a mm. lot of property uh, as well, but very much it's usually seventy to eighty percent lower risk investments mm. in these portfolios. But it was a bit of a the share price was hit, but the you know they've guarded for an eleven percent growth in profit next year too. So a little bit surprising. Yeah, it's it's always been a really strong business. They correct me if I'm wrong, Drew. I, I don't know off the top of my head if they still own Fedante. They do. So they got a hundred billion under management in Fedante, which is a distributor like Pinnacle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if so, if you think about that, like if there was like. What do we mean by that? It's if you take it, any managed fund, like say Magellan or something like the fund management company, basically what we're saying is Challenger does that too, yep. in effect. Uh, and a hundred billion dollars means it's pretty massive. They're big, so the GQG would be a similar size. Magellan's like forty billion. Uh, Pinnacle, I'm not you would you picked them last week. You should know what they're. Yeah, I should are. know, but I don't know. But so, Dante is like a distributor and owner of different fund managers. Um, mm. Challenger Investment Partners is one. Um, Ox Capital. Yep, uh, and a few others. Yeah, there's ben, a, not Bentham. But. Yeah, there's a heap of um, brands operating underneath that, which is a great model to have. Um, as we talked about last week, it's one of my favorite business models is you just use other great brands and you bring them into your stable, which is a, a good business model overall. So um, we can't forget CSL. Well, yes, of course. Yes. You're trying to skip over that one. Yeah, well, well, I know many uh, what many a Wattle Partner client <laughs> holds a bit of CSL in their, their portfolio. So tell me more. They've had a bit of a torrid time. I think they're down about 10, 15% in the last few months. Yeah, right. um, and that's kind of that pivot away from quality or defensive earnings as the market was rallying everywhere. Uh, and they, I think the weak, or the weak Aussie dollar was impacting on profit, but they so unsur- uh, kind of surprised with the 10% increase in profit, mm. um, had strong results in most of their businesses. So they basically do blood treatments for iron deficiency and, and influenza and other, they yep. tried COVID, but that didn't work out. Um, and they talked about basically creating a step change in the way they, so they have blood collection centers that they then convert into treatments mm. and one increasing the efficiency of blood collection. So not sure how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> Turn people upside Mobile down. Mobile blood knows? collection packs. <laughs> uh, and then increasing, so investing mass. So they're a big R&D group. Yeah, they spend huge. a billion, at least a billion a year in R&D. So how do you more efficiently extract the Immunoglobulins. Oh, here we go. Immunoglobulin. Dr. Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is really getting out that doctor. And that was what the market was kind of, uh, I think, excited about. So you, you, I guess your growth kind of gets capped by how much blood you can collect and yep. create, turn into treatments. Yeah, because so, they, they collect a lot of blood plasma and yeah. blood uh, in the United States, right, where, where you're paid to donate blood, whereas here yep. it's voluntary. Yep. You just go in and you give your blood. Uh, and that was a big problem during COVID. Remember that? Yeah, I think a lot I was of- arguing that CSL was X growth, and you were like, "It's not." <laughs> and I was like, "It is," and I was wrong. We we're both probably wrong. <laughs> it's about the same as where it was then. No, but it's a really it's a rock solid business. And when you have that type of pricing power and dominance, remember this was the only, from memory, the only one of the Australian companies that were at the Boston Consulting Group's top twenty five value creators report. We referenced yeah. it a few weeks ago. This is one of the on- this was the only Australian business that made like one of the world's most impro- important list. 
and it was a Commonwealth department, Commonwealth Serum Laboratories yeah. Yeah. originally. Oh, snake bites. Yeah. Anti-venoms, yeah. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you've ever tried, but I've asked a lot of clients to sell CSL that they bought at $2 a share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a surefire way to get into an argument. <laughs> That'd work. Yeah, sure. The thing that's basically brought them all their wealth. Even if they've got $2 million worth of it, uh-huh. selling $10,000 would never work. How about before we get to some hypotheticals that I got to for you, uh, any macroeconomic lens that you want to apply to today's show? You know, you've... You're Dr. Andrew Duramuth, so... I loved uh, Alan Kohler. Did you see he went a little bit viral during the week? I did not see that. So he put up a couple of... I don't I don't necessarily watch the news that he's on. I'm usually... I think it's like the ABC yeah, doing something. He, yeah, Eureka Report, all that sort of stuff, Alan Kohler. He does ABC at the end of the day, and he showed all these charts that basically showed that boomers and retirees are the ones doing the damage on inflation. So he had slides that were basically the uh, the younger generations are all saving money while the boomers are spending. Uh, mortgage rates are increasing. Uh, I think more, uh, mortgage payments are increasing yep. and savings are also increasing. So it's kind of off, you know, all the everything that uh, boomers are doing is offsetting what um, the, government, the younger the generations are doing. Yeah, right. And they're spending more and more money. The older you get, the more money you're spending, which is contributing more to inflation. So the boomers are ones out at Shinjin and, and all the restaurants, <laughs> not, the, not the millennials. Well, you um, think it makes sense, right? It's what we've been saying for ages. And that's why barbell. So that's why you know interest rates aren't doing anything. This is interest rates are inflationary <laughs> because for those money, you know, the baby boomers that make up, I guess, thirty or forty percent of the and they economy, got all the money. They've got more income on all the money that they already have. So yeah, and the thing is, there might be less of them, yeah. but there's more money. So like the higher <laughs> the interest rates go, the more well, if you have a million dollars, pays, you're getting fifty grand on return deposit now. Yeah. You used to get twenty. Yeah, Spend it. Chinching every night. <laughs> Um, so yeah, chinching restaurant obviously. Yeah. yeah, and it's true, right? And does the the question then becomes: Do interest rates have the right impact on the economy? No, clearly not. Yeah, that's Andrew Derriman. It's Andrew Derriman. <laughs> Very opinion. Feels weird Dermot. referring to myself. <laughs> Is it you? Um, so, in effect, what the, the implications of interest rates could be is that we cause more inequality. Um, in, in effect. In this, in this system. And they've spoken about that a lot in the US, that inflation is actually worse for the lower paid workers than it is for the higher Absolute, paid. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's almost always been the case that in market crises gone before us that people that diversify and have the means to allocate capital effectively go ahead when everyone else kind of falls behind. And, and that, MMT, here we go. <laughs> that probably comes back to what the RBA, did you see the RBA uh, set hearing at the, I think the parli- one of the parliamentary committees this week? No. So they started. So you talking. have twice the amount of time in one week because you're effectively two people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. nighttime working too. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, basically, the RBA was, I think, Philip Lowe was giving his final address to to Parliament or the Parliamentary Committee. Yeah, and it was pays. talking about why property prices aren't falling as much as expected and why the mortgage cliff may not be as bad as as many people expect. Mm-hmm. And he's pointed out what I think he's consistently pointed out and put pressure back on the governments which is supply is a massive issue. And I'm sure that you mm. talk about in the Australian Property Podcast too, that there's a massive undersupply for the amount of immigration. And you're always going to have this, particularly in, you know, not reasonable, but but popular areas, you're always going to have an undersupply because there's not enough development going on or appropriate development. Well, yeah. Pete Wargent over on the Australian Property Podcast, check it out. It's our newest podcast. 22,000 listeners already. I love that. Uh, Pete's a, a god of property, basically. And uh, he was telling me the other day, 
because people aren't leaving the country, the yep. net immigration figure is a lot higher than was Massive, it was supposed yeah. to be. It's currently ticking along at seven hundred thousand people a year. And no, Australia is not that we're big. We're making like eighty thousand new houses. <laughs> yeah, and that's where the issue is coming from. Yeah, and we, so we're not pointing the finger at like the people coming and arriving in Australia. It's not just that. It's literally like everything. So we want people to come to Australia because they spend more money here and they create more wealth for people already here than uh, people existing here. So um, immigration is incredibly positive for our country. We've relied on it for 30 years. Yeah, and that's why we are wealthy as a country. Um, But the problem is when you try and sandwich all these people into houses that aren't available, it creates massive problems. And is increasing, like increasing interest rates is putting builders, taking, sending builders broke. It's making it very difficult for property development and and more Mm. development to occur because the cost of capital has gone up. So it's exacerbating an existing shortage of property. Mm. And there's these things, and they talk about it on our friends in the US, talk about it all the time that it, it can become a 10 or 15 year issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Canada's got an even bigger problem than we do. Yep. And they're, they're, they're currently dealing with, I think it's 1.2 million people a year. Yeah. Bigger place, obviously. But um, yeah, it's a big issue. And we're, we're over on our um, Australian property podcast, once again, I'll reference that name. Uh, we have Simon Kushtamaka on the show. He's a demographer and he uh, is super well followed on Twitter, actually. He's got more Twitter followers than Alan Collar. Um, he was saying that what we'll probably see in the future in Australia is more of these cities that aren't major cities, but they are huge. Yep. So cities like, say, Geelong in Victoria or Wollongong or Newcastle. Townsville. Maybe Townsville. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see these types of places pop up because the cities simply are not built to handle these types of populations. And it makes complete sense, right? You. You simply are in and around Sydney, like it, you simply cannot you fit more houses. More. Yeah. Like it's like pretty logical. You can't put more houses there. Uh, Melbourne's obviously got a bit more of a, that whole Western North area is obviously ripe for uh, development. Uh, Brisbane too, in a little bit of a way. Perth obviously has got more space. Adelaide, <laughs> more space. Um, is that a, <laughs> a dig at Perth and Adelaide? <laughs> no, no. It's like much like Melbourne. It's yeah. very much the same as in- the CBDs have room to move. Yeah, yeah they yeah. have room to move. Like yeah. obviously, you could say the Adelaide Hills are a bit constrained there, but for the most part, those cities have much more room to grow, much like Geelong here in Victoria. Yeah. Um, and so what we'll see is more of that because we just don't, can't fit people in. So if you think just like interest rates are the only solution to a massive problem, yeah, I, I get kind of riled up about this because I just think it's, I think it's quite hilarious when people on Twitter are saying. Property prices are going to fall because interest rates go up. It's like, well, there's about 150,000 other reasons why that won't happen. <laughs> but you're just taking the one thing that you think is important. And it could be, and it should, house prices should fall when interest rates go up, but they don't because of the supply-demand imbalance. It probably took a little bit off the top, but that was more about the availability of credit yeah. rather than solely because of interest rates. Yeah. Well, uh, in speaking with Chris Bates, uh, who works with us on the mortgage broking side, uh, we're seeing a lot of people come through that simply don't have borrowing power. So 30, 40% reduction in their ability to borrow. And that's not just people looking to buy, it's people who already own. So if they want to refinance their property, they just simply cannot do it. So the net impact is that people are stuck in their homes. And secondly, that we just won't see the probably the frothiness in the market. But I mean, 
Yeah, if, if, if you're a, someone of means, say if you are a 40, 50-year-old, 60-year-old boomer, say something like this. I don't like that phrase, boomer, but say if you are in that bracket, that's how you identify. <laughs> um, but say you are and you've got means, you would just see the supply-demand imbalance in the country and you'd be like, well, I'll just go and buy some more property then. Yeah, and that's how it's worked for a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you've got the means. You can. You don't have to. You're not constrained. So good on you. Um Anything else before I get you I hit you with some hypotheticals? Uh, the I mean, wage growth came through. So that's the Andrew Derrimuth yep. comment, which is that uh-huh. wage growth is actually slowing. It was three point seven the quarter before, and it's down to three point six on an annual basis. So it's not that out of control wage growth that a lot of people were expecting, and probably uh, the opposite of what happened in the US, where they saw I think eight to seven to eight percent wage growth. And I think yeah, that's a really lot of that then, was though. that JobKeeper setup that people stayed attached to their jobs yep. and were less likely to jump around, like in the US. You said. Unemployment. And yeah, then remember, people remember the lines switching yeah. a lot. So, yeah, um, and then the Japanese economy—that was the only other thing I popped out. Six percent annualized. Oh wow! Here we go. Pace. So double what economists were expecting. Measured on the last day of the quarter, um, they got one day of data and then multiplied by three hundred and sixty-five. <laughs> <laughs> annualized this. No, six yeah, percent growth. That's like, that's, that's serious that's, growth for that's Japan. Fast. Yeah, and all export-driven. Yeah. Wow. So, Lots of Toyotas or um, Hybrid. advanced materials, yep. um, advanced technology. So, yep. yeah, massive result there. Yep. Um, and it's why, I mean, we met Andrew Clifford over in- uh, yeah, yeah, New Zealand. New Zealand. He was super pumped about Japan. Yeah. Um, and I know they made the you know, good money in Japan in the 90s. So, mm. yeah, um, that was super interesting from a macro perspective. Lots of really impressive companies with the ability to unlock value. Uh, those big holding structures and those types of Japanese brands that people know all around the world. That are tied up in these kind of, I guess, complicated webs of companies, but could really just, just even that alone could unlock a lot of value for their economy. So um, I did have two hypothetical questions for you, and these were put to me this morning, hence why um, I'm putting them to you right now. Two questions, very similar, but the answers probably give different responses. Like, the, the responses will be different, even though they're effectively the same question. So if you had $10 million, click of a finger, land in your bank account right now, what would you do? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so you wouldn't do anything different? I might uh, take another, take a holiday. Take a holiday. At like a proper, a proper holiday, like maybe charter a flight somewhere and yeah. head to Capri or yeah. <laughs> somewhere, Monaco. In, somewhere, in, somewhere in Europe where it's nice and warm. Yeah. But, Get that tan going. Yeah. And then you know, build a, Boring portfolio. Boring portfolio that just pays yeah. like a, enough to live on and yeah, enough 5% to Yeah, 5% off 10 million, half a million a year in income. Well, see, this is Wouldn't probably like a realistic thing because you guys already do this for some clients at Waddle who have that type of means. Exactly. So it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't, I don't know, you think a lot of people, I kind of enjoy, it's going to sound stupid, enjoy what I do at the moment. So yeah. a lot of people would just quit and retire. Yeah, they <laughs> would. I think yeah. you get bored pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, absolutely you would. You'd have to find meaningful work or meaningful something. Otherwise, you just, yeah. And it, I think about this a lot. Like, if you have the means, g- give back. And that doesn't mean, like, give your money away. But it means give back to the community around you. Have impact in your life. Teach, educate. Yeah. Support community groups. Go sit on the committee of your cricket club or whatever. Just go and Don't do, do s- that. Too much politics. Yeah, there. cricket. <laughs> Lawn bowls right here is where it really gets nasty. Um, but seriously- like, do you yeah. have the opportunity? So buy don't. some businesses. Yeah, support. Look, look for some other opportunities. Yeah, 
learn a new, yeah. go back to uni, learn a new skill, and yeah, that's help. more than enough to retire. So you've got the flexibility and to chase your passion. Mm. Everyone says chase a passion when you're younger, but you chase what generally chase what you're good at. Yeah, yeah. Um, number two, then, if you had one million dollars, click of the fingers, land in your bank account right now. What would you do? Uh, just loading up on some long-term investments. So it's just straight into the portfolio. Yep. I'd probably maybe give myself a present. Yeah. <laughs> what would you <laughs> a, buy a yourself? Car. A car. Maybe a car. I've never been that into cars, but it feels like you should reward yourself occasionally. I'd probably put on a lease anyway. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most tax-effective way to do this? Oh, I'm going to use none of that money that I just got. Okay, yeah. Um, maybe a watch. I don't know. Everyone likes watches, but... Mm. I got the same question. I got the same response that I had. Yours is going to be better than mine. Yours about a year so ago, mature and prudent. No, I, mine was pay off the mortgage and then I buy a farm. Have the equity. Oh, I probably like put it towards a farm. But if it was just as simple as this, I would pay off the mortgage, but then keep the line of credit there, so I could redraw against that and just invest in the portfolio. Yeah. That way, I don't have the stress of the mortgage, but I have the exposure to investing. Yeah. And if I ever wanted to sell. I told you your answer would be prudent. <laughs> yeah, I'll be always pretty prudent. And I'd also buy a car. It does <laughs> depend on how much debt you've got and how much uh, and what else is going in your life at the same time, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd yep. buy a Staby Craft boat. If anyone's looking to sell one half price, give me a ring. Um, okay, so we've got some questions this week. If we do answer your questions, just remember that it's general advice only. That means we don't know your personal circumstances. We don't know, for example, if you do want to go live on a yacht in Port Douglas. Uh, or maybe... Uh, your risk profile might be completely different to something that we expect. You might be a, a WWE wrestler, but you have a low risk profile. We don't know that. So please remember that we don't know your circumstances and you should seek the advice of a licensed trusted professional before you act on the information. And if we do mention things like ETF, super funds, etc., they're called financial products. Please refer to the product disclosure statement and target market determination or TMD. Look at those words. How are we good at words? Chris Hinton writes in, very vanilla name, uh, but good name, I would say. Chris is a very solid name. Uh, Chris Hinton writes in, what is your opinion on direct indexing? So let's explain what direct indexing is. Let's unpack that. Let's unpack it. It's unprecedented that we even talk about this. Uh, um, so direct indexing is like investing in an index fund, so like an ETF, index fund, Vanguard, whatever. Um, the key difference is that you get to choose what goes in it effectively. So imagine you go uh, into your brokerage account and you go to buy an ETF from iShares like BlackRock or Vanguard or BetaShares, Globlex, whatever, and you go, I want the Australian shares ETF. And it's just an index fund and just includes all of the shares in Australia in that one investment. But let's say hypothetically that you didn't want the box of cereal that was just on the shelf or the box of favorites. Let's say you want the box of favorites without the Turkish delight or the boost in my case, because who really likes boost, honestly? (laughs) So you get the box of favorites, less the boost. That means you're effectively creating your own portfolio. And we call this direct indexing. And it is not popular in Australia. Barely exists. It doesn't even really exist. Why? Because it's a really hard thing to do from a legal perspective in our environment. Also, our market's not that big. So Macquarie would be close to that? Or is that yep. not quite? The true, true indi- index. True index is just, in my understanding of it, it's just a basic index fund. Yeah. But it's just- Guaranteed. You're guaranteed. This is replicated in a different way. Yep. But they would be the most likely candidate to do this. Someone like that. They can 
prop yeah, trade the other like side. That. Yeah. So in the United States, direct indexing is expected to grow faster than ETFs, says an article on Nasdaq.com. Mutual funds and separate accounts over the next five years. It's poised to reach more than $800 billion in assets by 2026. Uh, just in the most recent December 2022 quarter, the market was expected to reach $462 billion of assets. So growing at 15% uh, per year. So what this- This is, advisor's using direct indexing. Yeah. yeah. And, and the custodial structure over there helps. Yeah. yeah. So we have the HIN-based model here, which is where you get your separate number and all that sort of stuff. But the thing, there is a direct indexing business in Australia. It's, I'm going to say it's semi-direct indexing. Um, uh, and that's provided by Nucleus Wealth. And- uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who runs the Invest Like the Best podcast, many people will know of him, uh, and his business, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, had a kind of offshoot that worked on some of these projects um, because they saw that people didn't just want the box of favorites. They wanted the box of favorites less the coal, or they want the ASX 200 minus retail stocks because they have some sort of view on that. Um, I am of the opinion that it's good. It's a good solution. But is it necessary? It's good, but probably not. And the way I liken this, Drew, is when you go to the pub, let's say Beneath Driver Lane, which is a fantastic whiskey uh, bar. And cocktails. And cocktail bar here in Melbourne. Beneath Driver Lane, get there, or be square. Uh, and you go up and you go to the bartender, who you might know, uh, given that you partly own the joint. Um, you <laughs> say, anecdotes. You say, you say Gavin, uh, give us a, uh, a Coke. And you say, with 2% less sugar, please. He's probably going to look at you and be like, just drink the bloody Coke, Drew. <laughs> um, and the reality is most people, I believe, will think that ETFs are fine. Yeah. Index funds are fine. Managed funds are fine. Direct indexing sounds great, and I think it can work, and it can be a wonderful thing. But is it really- Is our market big enough? Yeah. Is it really a game changer here in Australia? I don't think so. I don't- I mean, I think if you start to look- Invest. I think we've already investing directly overseas more. It, it yeah. would be, yeah, but I think the Australian market is so narrow yeah. that, and everyone loves a punt on a mining stock in Australia. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's got to be advisor driven, right, and institution driven over there to have that kind of flexibility. Absolutely, they got to build it right because they got to put it at scale. The the one thing that um, is really interesting, and Globlex, I'm going to mention Globlex here. Globlex is a sponsor of our Australian finance podcast. For full disclosure, have been for many years. Um, Globalx, uh, they just come out with a product. I can't remember the, the name of it, but it effectively excludes, it, it buys the ASX, excluding resources and banks. Yep. And the reason that they brought that fund out was because a financial advice group wanted it. They were they're like, hey, everyone's investing in resources and banks. Can you just give us something that doesn't have that? Like really simple, everything but that. And so it's like this example. Yep. And so we'll probably see more of those come to market where people can just get close enough is good enough. Um, and you can build a pretty yeah. good sector diversified portfolio already. Like you can buy energy by itself, you can buy financials by itself, you can buy value by itself. Yeah. You can buy a lot of things already. So I, I think legislation and the depth of the market here and probably financial literacy in Australia yeah. is a different level, like less people invest in stocks, I think, than in yeah. the US. So maybe that's a, a trigger that eventually sees it. I mean, we'd love it here. I mean, yeah. I'd love to have a, a betterment robo-advice set up that, Allows us to direct index, but yeah, pipe dream at the moment. Speaking of robo advice, did you see 
Stock spot. Stock spot. Yeah, pretty close. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> stock spot got a. I think it was off the top of my head. Sorry, Chris Brocky, founder of Stock Spot. Twenty-seven million dollars or something like this invested into the business over time. Um, from Mira, yeah. Yeah, from Mira Asset the Management, owner, the owner of Globlex. The over, owner of Globlex. So this is a really interesting thing in our world because I wonder where this goes from here. Uh, stock Spot, for those of you that don't know, it is a robo advice platform. We've had Chris, the founder, on the show a few times. Um, and that's an interesting thing because that gives people, purportedly gives people more control. And it's an advice platform. They give recommendations or products. Yeah, yeah. And, you can and go and in and you put in your profile and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, so that's a really interesting development too, where you see that the kind of groundswell in Australia, and I know a lot of big groups are looking at this and they're thinking, how do we get closer to the individual investor to help them make decisions? Direct to consumer, direct to investor. Yeah. And effectively, that's what direct indexing is. Um, it's a way to get closer to you to allow you to have customizable portfolios. But anyway, that's a great question from Chris Hinton. Thank you for writing in. Bang for your buck says, if I buy shares worth $10,000, for example, and they double, woohoo, and I decide to sell $10,000 worth, is there any tax liability? As technically, I haven't made a profit. <laughs> Thanks in advance. <laughs> Bang for your buck. <laughs> so the way capital gains tax is, is calculated is the- oh, oh, how good would that be though? The purchase price of each individual unit and the sale price of each individual yeah. unit. So it's yeah, the 10 grand you're selling, you're considering it to be the purchase price, but you're assessed on what you paid for each unit within that bucket. So if you bought 10 grand in multiple- tranches and different have different uh, unit prices or costs that you paid for them, you could generally pick which mm. cost base yeah. um, and and, deter and have some control, but only if you bought them separately yeah. over a long period of time in this case. Yeah, if you just chuck 10 grand into BHP, it doubles, you sell half. It's taxable. It, it means that the $5,000 original cost yeah. is now double, so you do, yeah, you would be paying more. Um you would be paying tax, sorry. The only time you can offset capital gains is against capital gains, as far as I'm aware, like long-term capital, capital gains. Capital losses. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Against and if you hold it, so you hold it for 12, 12 months. months, half the gain is reduced and then applied to you at your marginal tax rate. Yeah. And there's so strategies to reduce that too. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, jargon around this, but basically you still pay tax. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the next question comes from an oldie but a goodie, and they had two questions in one. I think they may have hit enter and then gone back and then- submitted a question. First question is just feedback, not really a question. How good is ShareSite? Uh, the podcast on <laughs> ShareSite- I've seen it a couple of times, okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the podcast on ShareSite made me explore. Seems I have a full account through a Morningstar subscription I forgot about. Oh, okay, great. Uh, they went through, spent their, their day going through their SMSF and their personal holdings. Holy wow, they say. How good is this? Returns and trades at a glance with attached PDFs. Bye-bye spreadsheet. A serious time saver when I'm looking to retire and manage a portfolio. Nice to bring in some administration automa automation. <laughs> Cheers and beers, fellas. Um, thanks, an oldie buddy goodie. So, ShareSite, for, for people that don't see Advisor, like, say, Drew here, ShareSite, uh, and there's another um, platform called Nevexa, they effectively integrate with your broker and automatically tra track your taxable positions and your performance. So you can see if you're a great investor, a good investor, or a horrible investor, and you can make informed decisions. I'm a big fan of using this, this technology. A lot of people say they don't use it. They just rely on the ATO pre-fill because ATO will automatically, if you put your tax file number in, automatically collect data on you. But in my opinion, ATO often misses a lot. Yeah. That pre-fill, I wouldn't rely on that. I would have a second source of truth. Good question. So we've got a couple more questions here. These are a bit different these this week. Funky cold Medina. Um, so 
Okay, here we go. This is a good one. Let's jump straight to that. Funky Cold Medina says, thanks for the show. Love the banter, people. LL Cool J? I feel like it is. LL yeah, LL yeah. Cool J. Yeah. Um, we, we are trying to get away from the bromance, just so everyone knows, but it- you know, there's a bit of chemistry in here, I'm not going to lie. Taking an alternative view on rates falling in 2024-2025. This is, this is I think Funky Cold Medina, he hasn't realized this is not the alternative view. This is the this is the, the house view. view. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Andrew Deremuth has called falling interest rates, uh, maybe not in say 2025, but say interest rates fall in 2024-2025. What would an investment strategy look like if rates were to stay elevated for the foreseeable future? I mean, from the retirement perspective, we build portfolios that uh, are ready for all environments. So yeah. we're not going to set everything up to benefit from rates falling or rates increasing. You can't. You're always going to have investments that are suited to each type of market. That's the boring, you know, prudent mm. answer, and we think that's the way money should be managed. But if you think about, uh, I mean, everyone is pre- most the yield curve is predicting it. Most economists are predicting, but economists like Derrimuth always yeah. get it wrong anyway. <laughs> um, Broken clocks. But if you're saying you're, you're expecting rates to stay elevated but not increase further, so what are the types of companies and sectors that benefit from that? Mm. Generally, you're going to start to think about the financial sector. Mm. So the, if, if they're not increasing and property doesn't collapse, well, higher sustained higher rates should be good for net interest margins, yep. should be good for companies like uh, – Challenger, as we're talking about, anything that has investments on its balance sheet that's able yeah. to generate computer share always benefits benefits from high rates. So all these companies, payments uh, companies, yep, exactly, that are driven by that net interest margin platforms, yep, probably yep. help. Yeah, they love yeah. a bit of cash. <laughs> uh, any asset classes outside? If you expecting them to stay higher, then your, I mean, fixed income either way looks yeah, pretty bonds. good. Floating rate probably looks okay yeah. because your floating rate is reset every quarter. If rates are staying flat, then your income from floating rates is pretty good. You don't want to be in floating rate when rates are falling yep. uh, naturally. So we'll always have different parts of the of the portfolio position for different things. Um, anything, any alternatives that play particularly well? Well, I'd say like fixed income generally, like uh, pigs, a pig going through a snake is what yeah. I heard once upon a time. Um, it would suggest that the economy is quite strong though. That's it probably does. That's the, the backup there. You probably want to have, you probably want to see consistent, or in this case, they've said elevated interest rates. You don't want to see shocking interest rates because shocking interest rates really distorts the, yeah. s- the, the system. For example, banks all of a sudden go from, yeah, it's positive that we'll get higher rates to, oh my gosh, like- this is really not good for our uh, profitability. So you want you want to see sectors that would benefit from, like we can only speak generally here, but if you're looking at, at companies, like a company by company basis, in effect, like what we're talking about at the top of the show with the people that have cash, i.e. the, the baby boomer generation, um, as a generalization, if you have cash when interest rates go up, you will be in a fundamentally better position than someone who does not have cash if you have debt. Yeah. Because you are one gets compound interest for, the other one gets compound interest against. And Thanks, so, Alan. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, I'll be on the ABC tonight. Um, so, what this means is when you're looking at companies like stocks, for example, you want to find companies that have cash positive balance sheets yep. and resilient cash flows, be- not because they're going to survive, but because they will be able to invest aggressively when the rest of the industry that they operate in is falling. So you mentioned JB Hi-Fi before. Many retailers would be struggling right now. Some of those online retailers are really struggling, for example. But JB Hi-Fi has the ability to be like, well, we're going to just invest more in store. Yep. And we're going to take market share from everyone else because we're stronger than them right now. 
And that's an example of that. Um, you, you mentioned floating rate notes, which is a good one. Um, anything that's like any diversified debt fund that has um, exposure to floating rates is really important. Yep. So like uh, I think senior secured are often, they can be floating if I'm not mistaken. Or, yep, or yeah. a margin above. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you can have Shorter like- Shorter duration. Yeah. You can have like uh, an interest rate set for the next six or 12 months plus CPI or plus interest rates or something like that. And then you can get exposure to lots of different- by investing in the fund, you get a lot of exposure to a lot of different interest rates. Um, yeah, so that's really good. But like you said, don't be short. Don't be caught holding floating rates in a portfolio when it turns. Um, okay, so we've got a few more questions in here. Love Doctor. I've got a feeling I might know who this person actually I, I think they might actually be a doctor. But Love Doctor writes in and says, what up, Owenada and Daddy Drew? Currently researching healthcare ETFs. A recurring line at the moment on the pod is don't look at performance figures under three years for ETFs. I'm going to look backwards. How do you then suss newer ETFs? Trying to stay away from IXJ, which is the iShares Global Healthcare ETF, IXJ is the ticker symbol, and have found EDOC, E-D-O-C, drug, D-R-U-G, and health, H-L-T-H, of which EDOC and health are relatively new. Tips, tricks, etc. So when we say under three years what we say is that we prefer three years it doesn't mean you can't cross that line and look at shorter term performance i think particularly in sin single sector yeah like if you're doing it aussie equities against a benchmark you want to see three years yep. if it's something different particularly in active management but when you go in a single sector i think i mean past performance no you know predictor of future performance but Sectors can significantly underperform yeah. in, in different market environments. Healthcare struggles when interest rates are higher because they generally trade on higher multiples or price yeah. earnings multiples. So I honestly, when we get managers come in pitching new funds to us, whether it's you know ethical, tends to have more healthcare and technology, say I don't care about your performance for the last, don't tell me how bad it was in the last 12 months. Yeah. What are the, what's the positioning for the future? And that's what this question is more about. My first question is why I stay away from BlackRock. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I know we covered it a little while ago, but I would think the iShares ETF, the IXJ, I'd say it's because it's too diversified. Or too tilted to the too, big pharma. Too mega cap. Yeah. Yeah. Ellie, and, Ellie Lilly and- Yeah, like all of those Pfizer names. Pfizer. Yeah, all those names uh, where you probably have them in, say, your- Core. Yeah, VGS or your Qual ETF or your NASDAQ, or I don't know. In IVV, whatever ETF you have as a broad-based exposure, and now you're trying to add healthcare, you're probably wondering, this is a problem with um, my overlap here. But I would say that uh, in this instance, maybe the comment is more in ref reference to something that I kind of said negatively a little while ago, that this ETF claims to have exposure to, I think it's 1,200 of the, the index is the 1,200, yep. but it doesn't do that. It only owns the top 100 or so stocks because it's too expensive for the ETF provider to go and buy each individual one and blah, 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 blah. That's not a bad thing. Um, but what will we look for in a newer ETF? For a sector-based ETF, an ETF that just literally buys all of healthcare, it's pretty simple. You just look like, you look at it like you would say a, a core ETF, like a a diversified ETF that just invests in all of Aussie shares or all of the US shares or all global shares, with the major difference being that you want to make sure that you get your position sizing right. I would yep. say that's probably the key distinction here. Not being too niche, because I think EDOC goes a little bit too techy. That's what, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. For those thematic style things, it's a different I think there's three classes of ETFs, Drew. There's 
like your vanilla, like whatever, Core. like dairy milk. That's your vanilla. But then you've got like your Mars bar, which is kind of a little bit more like a sector-based fun. It's a little bit of caramel in there, you know, you're sweet. But then you've got Turkish Delight, which is right out of the <laughs> spectrum. That's the kind of thematic <laughs> ETF. And you want to have that in moderation. And you put – so, IXJ would be close to the Cadbury. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a kind core-ish. of – Core-ish. Yeah, core-ish. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit like a Mars bar because it's just health, but it's a very well-balanced, big ETF. And I just think um, – I think health and lead it, health and edoc tend over to the yeah telemedicine and that sort Turkish of stuff. Delight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look at us get back to the golden rules. They're the sensible ones from model partners. Um, but that would be how I'd frame this: is that they're kind of different tools for different ones. If it's just a sector-based Mars bar-looking thing where it's just the 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 healthcare companies, that's fine. But just yep. position it correctly. If it's telemedicine, you have to have a very strong view on telemedicine, for example. Yeah, that's clearly satellite. And yeah, what's, clearly. What's your port? Position sizing within a global equity yeah. allocation, very be. small. I would, yeah. That's a very. That's more like a theme, a bit of a punt there, to be honest. Drug uh, seems the broadest exposure out of those. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar. It's global healthcare, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's in summary. You're going to look at fees. Depending on the fees, that would determine whether it's a core holding or not. You're going to look at the exposure to the sector. If it's just a vanilla sector kind of exposure, like. All healthcare, fine. You could consider that in either way. I'm just speaking generally here, of course. Um, when it's a thematic ETF, you have to be careful in those first few years, in my opinion, generally speaking. Um, thematic being like, we're not just targeting the sector, we're targeting something within the sector. Um, and that's where they, these need to be more more careful. Okay, so um, oh, here's another one, tax-related question, and it is the season. Jesus doesn't need to tweet. Says, loving the Saturday morning chats. My question is around selling negative stocks for end of year tax purposes. If you have bought ASX listed stocks, then sold at a loss, what can this loss be used against? Can I use it against interest I have gained over the year on my bank account or any dividends that I may have been paid, as these are both uh, seen as income, or is it only against future gains on shares? Um, yeah, and then there's, if I don't use the losses in that financial year, are they carried over to the next financial year? Good tax agent question. Yeah, so not personal advice. We can provide, uh, you know, tax um, uh, advice based on the investment recommendations we make. Yep. So capital gains uh, and capital losses are completely distinct from income. Yep. Uh, unless you're de- de- designated as a trader, which is incredibly rare. Yep. You have to be trading stocks a lot to be able to claim capital gains and losses as income. Uh, capital gains can, uh, um, they're taxed in the year or the, the discounted amount is taxed in the year that they're issued, but they can be reduced by losses and losses can be carried forward. Yep. So you don't lose losses in any given year. But as you'd expect, if they're, you know, capital and income account, if you're a capital gain or loss can't be used to offset an, an dividend or an interest amount. Yeah. But frank and credits offset all tax payable. Yeah, because it's Not your overall tax position. Tax. Yeah. yeah, but capital gains do just fall into your tax return and are taxed at your marginal rate just in a different part of your tax return. We get this question a lot about this time, anywhere between May and August every year. <laughs> it's, I've got a couple of negative looking stocks over here. I don't like yeah. the look of that one and this one seems a bit funny. Like, can I get rid of them and then use that tax loss on this other stuff that I'm making a gain on? And the answer is maybe, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> and it's always careful, don't like... You can, it's illegal to sell stocks solely to harvest losses. Yep. That's uh, illegal. Yeah. Friend. Division legal. 4A, is it? It's a, there's, a, there's a broad rule. Washing, essentially. If yep. you're selling and then buying back, that is 
definitely against the spirit yeah. of the law and tax avoidance. Yeah, so that's tax avoidance. And that's a general uh, anti-tax avoidance or something, a general tax avoidance, something yeah. or other. Um, and it basically means that if your sole reason for making a decision uh, is to reduce tax, it could trigger that rule. And the ATO can use it and will use it. Yeah. So just it's... The, the long-term, I guess, focus of investors should be, you know, three, four, five, 10 years, 20 years out into the future. And the basic principle is that you shouldn't let the tax tail wag the dog because at the end of the day, tax is just an outcome of successful investing. Um, of course, manage it on your way through, but at the same time, don't let it be the primary driver. That's my philosophy on these things. All right. So last question before we wrap it up with a dad joke. Fanging it <laughs> says, fang all in caps with an ING. IT. So Fanging It says, congrats to Drew. Drew, congrats. On buying Fang ETF in its doldrums. The Fang ETF, just as an FYI, I'll insert myself here, is an ETF that invests in the top 10 US tech stocks uh, like Meta, Google, Microsoft, etc. Curious whether this uh, is a buy and hold core slash strategic position or more of a tactical satellite position. What will make the S&P 500 dominance of the tech sector fade away like the railways? Or is the tech sector truly different from other sectors which would exhibit cyclicality and disruptability? Well, <laughs> what would make you sell the FANG ETF? Let's just go with that. So where, where does the FANG ETF sit in a portfolio? And second part of that is how could you know when it's not going to be dominant anymore? Yeah, I think this is a good question because everyone has a different opinion. Yeah. Um, Personally, when I grow, when I do a core satellite, I'm looking for super low cost, super high diversified as my core. So that's like VAS, IA, not IAF, that's a bond. Bond ETF? Yep. No, IVV? The, um, IVV. That's one, yep, US. Like the very broad, super low cost gives you a massive broad exposure, the MSI, IWLD, yep. these kind of um, broad exposures. Yep. I think, and I think it isn't, as you said, maybe it's not just core satellite, there's core satellite thematic yeah so your super niche goes out in that thematic or what you were talking about was the um turkish delight yep and i think fang is a reasonably high quality core naturally no satellite yep naturally because of the the microsoft's the amazon's the apples that are part of it yeah um the metas uh but personally it doesn't sit i don't think it sits always in a core portfolio it's yep. a tilt towards technology uh my my selling I'm I'm not never good at selling as we know from my <laughs> falling knives in my portfolio, um, but your your view has to change on not just the the four stocks in the name because it does hold ten stocks and as yep. much broad does have Nvidia uh, and Tesla. Yep, from memory. Yep, that your view has to change on that sector and and them being ripe for disruption. So mm. um, they've. I mean, I'm really considering it now, or at least locking in all the profits I've got. Yep. Um, but I view it as I'm a, I'm a high risk taker in my super fund because I can't touch it for yeah, years. 25 years. Uh, but I see it as a not a core holding, more mm. of a satellite, and I'm considering locking in profits at the moment. Wow, you've heard it here first, folks. So I would just just tweak that uh, a little bit for my own response. Is that Fang could go sl as a small core position as like a extra waiting towards the big tech stocks if that's what you wanted you could use it with a majority holding in one of the more diversified funds the problem that some people will come up against with the fang etf and the core is a big position is that it does have a slightly higher fee um, which is something to keep in mind but good question 
Uh, so there, we do need to uh, give an award for the best question and name. Now, I think the best question came from Chris Hinton, who asked about direct indexing. I think that's a really important thing for us to cover. So, Chris, right into us, you got a, yourself a free value investor program. Um, in terms of names- Funky uh, Cold Medina. We're yeah, thinking Funky Cold Medina, uh, who asked about, uh, they said about the banter, they love that, and about interest rates and what would that look like if they were sustained for a period. But some of these names were great too, Love Doctor and Jesus Doesn't Need to Tweet. Speaking of Jesus doesn't need to tweet. P.S. Got a dad joke, they say. I broke up recently with my girlfriend, Lorraine, because I was seeing my new girlfriend, Clara Lee. Good news is I can see Clara Lee now Lorraine has gone. See you guys <laughs> at the Gold Coast Roadshow. See you next week, Jesus. Um, we cannot wait to see you there. We, we, I looking, thought it couldn't get worse than mine, but I'll take that. <laughs> We're looking forward to meeting uh, Clara Lee. Um, Anyway, mate. Might need a drum roll for mine. I've got a good dad joke coming out. I think it's yellow. Oh, it's clap. Green? (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay, let's just give up an event. But let's just say this. Um, Retirement retirement event, 26th of October. Retirement event coming up 26th of October in Melbourne. If you're, say, over 40, um, it's talking about retirement strategies. It's talking about retirement planning, investing, et cetera. Get in contact. There is a link in the show notes. You can check that out. It is free to attend. Um, but seriously, it's more for people that are interested in retirement and planning for retirement. And generating wealth, income in retirement. Generating exactly. income. That's what it's designed for. If you're an accumulator, if you're in your 20s, 30s, or even if you're still investing for decades to come, don't forget there's a Rask Roadshow in a city near you. Also, links in the show notes to everything included in the show. Drew Meredith uh, from Mortal Partners, you've got to take us away into the sunset, mate. What did the drummer name his twin daughters? And a one and a two. It's <laughs> <laughs> the first Classic. time I've ever got a laugh out of you. That's, I'll take that. I'm, I'm annoyed at myself because I feel like I've read that somewhere. So, dad says jokes. Dad says, yeah, always. Dad said, always, always, dad always, says always dad says jokes. Full credit to dad says jokes. Well, Drew Matter from Water Partners, thanks for taking the time out and joining me uh, on this Wednesday. Go Matildas. Good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.